Well, as Pastor Joe mentioned, this morning we begin or we continue our study through Second Peter. Um, we spent the last year or so continuing through Second uh, Peter chapter two as as uh, the Lord had given me opportunity to preach, and so finally today we have at last reached chapter three, and it's been a chapter that that uh, I've been looking forward uh, to reaching uh, for a number of reasons. One, mainly because it is so relevant to us today. You know, it's so easy to read scripture, you you glean principles, but in the back of your mind, sometimes you think, well, this is for them, and I wonder what was happening to them, and how does this apply to me? Well, chapter 3 is very applicable to you. Um, and so I've been looking forward to reaching this, this point in the book. And second, I, as I mentioned last time, I was so very glad to get done with chapter 2 just because it, it, it talks so much about false teachers and the damage that they're going to cause in, in the lives of believers and the lives of the church. And it's, it was very dark. And so now um, we, he, uh, he turns from the false teachers and he, and he returns back to instruction to, to you, the believer. And I appreciate uh, the book of Second Peter as a whole, the, just the practicality of this book, about the instruction that it gives to you towards your faith in your everyday life. The promises that Peter gives you in this book and, and the hope and, and confidence that goes along with them, they're just as applicable to you as, it was, as they were to the original audience. And in the same way, the warnings that he gives, the dangers that he mentions, uh, also uh, apply to you. And you need to be uh, aware of them and you need to realize them. In chapter 1, just uh, by way of review, chapter 1, he, he stresses the importance of growing in Christian character so that you will make your calling and election sure, so that you will grow in your faith to know that you're a Christian and, and so that other people around you know that you're a Christian. In chapter 2, as I mentioned, he, he, uh, he says, Beware of false teachers. They're going to enter in the church. Be mindful of them. And he unleashes a, a 22 verses of condemnation towards them, towards their message, towards their character, towards the things that they, that they will do. And so now, uh, Peter turns, and, and beginning in chapter 3, uh, he shifts and, and goes back to instruction of the believers. So, uh, let us read together Second Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Peter writes, This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that that then existed was diluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Let's bow in a word of prayer together. Father, as we look into your word, uh, I pray that uh, you would uh, just... Give us insight into the truths found in them, Lord, that we would apply it to our lives, Lord, that we would see you and be drawn closer to you, Lord, that we might uh, live in a way that is pleasing to you, Father. Bless our time as we, as we seek to grow and know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So Peter begins chapter 3, and he, kinda, he begins it uh, with a pastoral tone. He's, he's reconnecting. He's just been talking about these false teachers. And now he kind of turns and you can kind of see the love that he had for, for his audience, the people he was writing to. 
He begins and he says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to, beloved. And so he, he cares deeply about these people. And he says, this is the, the second letter. And the first letter that he wrote was the letter which we have also in Scripture, which is First Peter. And he says, in both letters, his main desire, the main goal in both of these letters was to stir up and to encourage them to remember the things that they had already been taught. The things that they had been taught. He wanted to stir up a reminder, the knowledge and, and the principles which they had known. And this concept of remembering is very important to Peter. And it's a constant theme, especially throughout this book of Second Peter. If you look back a couple of chapters in, in 1 Peter 1, beginning in verse 12, after just talking about the, the, the character that Christians were supposed to follow after, he says in verse 12, Therefore I intend to always remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Then he continues in 13. I think you're right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir up by way of reminder. Then down in in verse 15, he says, I will make every effort so that after my departure, you will be able to recall at any time these things. Again, he wants them to remember. And then uh, we come to chapter 3 and he's saying the same thing again. The reason why I'm writing is so that you remember the things which you know. I'm, I'm, I'm stirring up your mind so that you remember the things which you've been taught. And Peter does not, he doesn't simply want to give them knowledge. He freely admits that a lot of the stuff that he's writing is things that they already know. It might be things that you already know. He doesn't just want them to know this knowledge. He wants them to live it. He wants them to live it, to put it on and, and make it on the forefront of their brain so that it's, it's affecting their life. It's not just information stored in a file somewhere. Because knowledge is irrelevant if it's not remembered or practiced. You can know a lot of things, but if you're not putting the things which you know into practice, then they don't do any good. You know, it's like firemen or police officers or soldiers. I mean, they have a lot of training, but when pressure comes or when that training is needing, if they don't put the things that they know into practice, then they fail at their duty. Peter wants them to remember the things they know. So when we speak of remembering, even throughout uh, our time in the passage this morning, that's the type of remembering that Peter is talking about. It makes me think about, uh, I don't know if your mom ever says this, when, I, you know, when your mom says, uh, remember your coat, remember to put on a coat before you go out. Or uh, remember to clean your room before our company comes. You know, or, you know, I don't know if you got this, it was remember your best behavior. Right? When your mom says that, she's not just saying, oh, let me think about what my best behavior is and have this knowledge. No, she wants you to remember it so that you carry it out, so that you put your coat on, so that you clean your room, or so that you put on your best behavior. Right? And that's what Peter is wanting. He's wanting you to remember this knowledge that you have so that you live according to it. How often have we made mistakes? How often have we missed out on things because we fail to practice the things which we already know? And the reason why Peter is doing this is because he's about to give some warnings of some difficulties that you're going to face. Difficulties that the early church was going to face and difficulties that you too in this day and age, this very day, are going to face as well. And he wants you to be prepared, not only prepared, but equipped to deal with it. And you will be equipped to deal with it. And this is, this is accomplished by remembering and applying God's word. And so he, he begins and he says, this is now the second letter I'm writing to you. And both of them, and this is still in verse 1, he says, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
The reason why he is remembering is because he's reminding you, he's trying to stir up these things that you know so that you are prepared for when difficulties come. The Greek word here for, for stir up, it's, it's an interesting one. It's, it's, it's often used uh, in reference to waking somebody up from sleep. In fact, in the books of, uh, of Mark and Luke, uh, this word is used for when uh, the disciples woke up Jesus in the boat when they were perishing in the storm on the Sea of Galilee. They, they went to woke him up. Lord, we're perishing. You know, or it's also used in the book of Acts for when the angel struck Peter on the side and woke him up when he was in prison and said, follow me, and he released him out of prison. It gives the idea of arousing someone from sleep so that they are awake and prepared to act. And that's what Peter is wanting to accomplish. And interestingly, this word is also often used to, to, uh, in reference to stirring up liquid, as if, you know, uh, uh, stirring either a big pot or something to, to break up whatever's hard on the, on the bottom and to, to mix some sort of liquid so that it's, it's, properly, it's properly made. I don't know if, it, 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 in just in reading this about, about this word, it made me think of, have you ever, I'm sure you have, but have you ever made the mistake of not, uh, or forgetting to shake the ketchup bottle before you put the ketchup on your plate for your fries? Right, what happens, right? This water stuff comes out and it takes, it's like, ah. Uh, you know, or maybe it's Greek salad dressing, you forget to shake it and you put it on and it's hard to tell at first until you take the first bite and then you're like, mm, something's not right with this. Right? It's not as if the salad dressing or the ketchup are bad in themselves. They just have not been mixed up properly. In order for them to accomplish their purpose, they need to have all their ingredients working together um, and mixed properly so that, they, so that they taste right. And the same is true with your Christian walk. All your parts need to be working together. You need to be remembering all the different aspects and applying them so that you accomplish your purpose. Many people often come to church. Many people have often come to church for years. And so they get in this mundane rut and they hear things, but in a sense they hear it so much that it just gets filed or it gets in their heart. And it's almost like the, the hard part of the, some sort of hard ingredient on the bottom that gets left and, and the rest gets put on top. And so although they know it, they, they live and act as if they've forgotten it. And so Peter says, I, I want to stir up your minds. He says, I want to stir up your sincere mind, or some versions say, wholesome thinking. And what he means is that he wants to stir up their mind so that it's prepared to think and act accurately, as in accordance with God's Word, as a Christian is supposed to. And what is Peter wanting us to remember? Well, he explains in verse 2. He says, that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. He's meaning the Word of God and all that comes along with it. And as, well, as, as the passage unfolds, he, he specifically has in mind the idea of the second coming of Christ. That Christ indeed is going to return and there's going to be a judgment and that everyone is going to give an account for the things that they have done. But I think it's not limited to this because the second coming of Christ is, is so tied into everything about the Gospel. I mean, if you, if you reject the, the second coming of Christ, you, you reject so many other things about the Gospel, right? That He came in the first place or that He's lying because He says He's going to return. He says, Behold, I, I'm coming quickly. I mean, He says all these different things. And so, although as we go through, we'll kind of see uh, the flavor of the second coming of mine, I think that in general, as Christians, we should be stirring up in our mind, remembering all the teachings of God so that we might live appropriately. The best way to be a sober-minded Christian is to remember God's Word. And Peter is saying this because, as I mentioned, trouble is coming. Trouble is coming. And indeed is now here. 
The early church had, uh, as Peter will describe, some adversaries that were once again try to undermine them, try to attack them, try to rip the faith out from under them. If you're a Christian and you are listening to me this morning, you too have these same adversaries. They exist and they're here. And they're trying to do the same to you as they were in the early church. And so from this passage, Peter, he provides three ways that remembering God's word will equip you to stand strong when your faith is tested. Three ways that remembering God's word will equip you to stand strong when your faith is tested. And the first one is this. Remembering God's word will prepare you for when the world attacks your faith. Remembering God's word will prepare you for when the world attacks your faith. And these three ways I just mentioned, this actually will cover verses 1 through 13. And so, uh, admittedly, we're not going to get through all three today. Because Peter spends a fair amount of time in this first one. Spends seven verses talking about uh, being prepared for when the world is going to attack your faith. And so we're going to spend our time there this morning. Peter wants you to remember the word so that you're prepared. Prepared for what? Well, he continues. Verse 3. Peter writes, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. He says, Be warned, there's those that exist right now that are seeking to undermine your faith, that they're going to attack you, and you need to be prepared. They're going to mock your faith. They're going to mock the very things you believe in and scoff at you. And who are these scoffers? Well, I, I think certainly Peter has these same false teachers in mind that he talked about in, in chapter 2. About how they're going to scoff the idea that you take the Bible literal and that you, uh, that you actually believe in a, in a physical second coming. And you might laugh and say, well, who, you know, what kind of Christian teacher is going to scoff at a, a literal second coming of Christ? Well, there's Christian teachers that, that scoff and mock a, a lot of different things. And it's shocking that people follow them. I mean, recently in the news, we've talked about a couple, a couple times, this gentleman named Rob Bell, and he's questioning the whole existence of hell. I mean, the idea that, well, what kind of Christian teacher would, ex, you know, uh, resist and, and kind of mock the idea of hell? Well, they're there, and this man has thousands and thousands of followers. What does God's Word say? What does God's Word teach? So I think that he certainly has false teachers in mind, but I also think, you know, he's referring to any non-believer who's going to scoff and mock your faith for what you believe. So we need to be prepared because it's going to happen. You will experience this. I guarantee it in your life at some point. If you haven't already, and if you have, you will again. And when are these scoffers going to come? Well, he begins, he says, first, first of all, and he's just saying, you know, he, he's making, it's not saying this will happen first, but that it's uh, uh, prominent, it's, it's in the foremost. He says that these scoffers will come in the last days. And this is an interesting phrase, because when I, when I first read this, when I was younger, whenever I read something that said the last days, I was always thinking of something that's where, you know, way towards the, you know, the end of the world, as if right before uh, the Christ was going to come back in the, in the end of the age. But uh, the New Testament doesn't use it that way. Actually, the New Testament uses this term, in the last days, just to reference uh, the period of time from Christ's first coming to his second coming. It's this whole period of time. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. 1 John 2.18 says, Children, it is the last hour. 
And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. This idea of it being the last hour encompasses the entire church age. It encompasses the time, the very time that Peter is writing this letter, and it encompasses this very moment as I speak now. It is the last days. It is the last hour. And we say this because once Christ came and returned, he says, I'm going to come quickly, and so this could be the very last day. For all we know, Christ could be coming back tonight. And so we live and act accordingly as if it's our last hour in the sense of urgency and living out our faith, walking in truth, proclaiming the gospel um, is common throughout the Old Testament. And so these scoffers and these mockers are not going to come in the future. Indeed, they're here now. They're here this very day and they were there then. And they're going to test your faith and they're going to mock your faith. And what motivates these mockers? And how are they going to test your faith? Well, within this passage, then, Peter gives us three further insights on what these mockers, how they're going to test your faith specifically. And this is great because, in a sense, Peter is giving you their game plan ahead of time. How much easier is it to to be prepared when you know the enemy's game plan ahead of time? And that's what Peter's doing. And so this this is where we're going to spend the majority of our time looking at their game plan. What should we prepare for? Well, the first thing that he says these mockers do is that those who attack or scoff at your faith, they do so because of their sinful desires. They're not seeking truth. The reason why they're attacking you, the reason why they're attacking the God we worship is because of their sinful hearts and their sinful desires. This is so important. You must understand this. It will help you to be prepared. It will help you to equip and to stand strong when they attack your faith. In fact, knowing this will even help you to have compassion and love towards them. To be patient for them. And even as they're attacking you, your attitude towards them is compassionate and love and patient. How? How is this possible? Well, what does God's Word say about the heart of unbelievers? Peter just gave us a whole chapter in chapter 2 about the heart of false teachers, right? It's driven by lust, it's driven by greed, it's driven by power and to worship themselves and to get all the glory for themselves. It's just the same as the world. That's what false teachers are. They're in the world. They come into the church, but they're living by the world. They reject this idea that Christ is God and that that He died for the sins of people and that uh, He performed miracles and that especially, yeah, they believe He died, but the idea that He's going to come back, they laugh at And the reason why they do is because they like to follow their own sinful desires. Because if all that was true, then what you do in life does matter. The things that you do do count. And God is paying attention and each person will have to give an account for the things which they've done. And they'd rather live by their own standards. And Romans chapter 1 describes this as well. How God has revealed Himself and, and the knowledge of Him is clear from creation. Because He's put it in His heart. Yet these non-believers, these scoffers... They purposely push down the truth in their heart and reject it so that they can live according to their own sinful lusts and so the Lord just allows them to. And they know that it's wrong, but they seek to do what is they seek to do it anyway and even give approval to those who do it. Their hearts are hard, they are spiritually dead. They're dead. Have you ever interacted with someone like this? I have. 
Right? It's almost infuriating sometimes. You know, I mean, you give them the gospel, you share the truths of God's word, and they mock and they scoff, or they give some sort of smart little quip about some philosophy, or what about this, or didn't the Bible borrow from this? And there's clearly errors in the Bible, and they, they kind of have this air about them. And no matter what you say, they mock and they scoff and they resist. Well, if you know that they're driven by, ultimately, the sinful passions of their heart, then you'll be able to stand strong. If you remember God's Word, because God's Word tells us. But you know what? You know what else God's Word tells us? You will be able to endure them and have compassion on them because you too were once just like them. You were once among the scoffers. It was you. Ephesians, Paul writes in Ephesians 2, actually flip there, if if you will, Ephesians chapter 2, just to, to give us some insight into this. Paul is giving some instruction to the church. And he's reminding them about what their prior state was. And he begins, chapter 2, we'll begin in verse 1. Paul writes, And you were dead in in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Scoffers. Among whom we all once lived in in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That was you. You were dead in your trespasses. You were a scoffer. And now, by God's grace and His love, He made you alive so that you can understand spiritual things, so that you can know the things of God. And when you understand that, when you understand that the world is spiritually dead and they just can't understand the things of God, then you can have compassion on them. They won't understand the things of God unless the Holy Spirit enables them, just like He did for you if you're a Christian. And when you remember this, then you can be prepared when they mock you. In fact, you should be surprised if they don't. You should be shocked if someone doesn't mock you because you're... You say you're a Christian and you believe in Jesus and that they need to repent of their sins and that you live for Him and worship Him and not yourself. If you have this understanding, then you can be prepared to deal with them no matter what they say because you know they're blinded in their hearts. Don't let them challenge your faith. Don't let pride shrink you back. Don't let their laughter make you feel embarrassed. In fact, have compassion on them and preach all the more. I mean, this whole thing makes me think of those people, and we don't see them as much. It's mainly for the generation past. You thought that, uh, like, the landing on the moon was a big hoax. Have you ever, I don't know if you've ever seen these documentaries or talked to people. Uh, my, my, my wife, Leanne, she says that her, her great-grandfather was like this. He, he believed it was all just made up in Hollywood. It was all just a scam from the government, and none of it was real. It was all tricks of the camera, Right? I mean, it's hard to get mad at a person who believes that. No matter how much you've, you've convinced them. No, listen, I'm telling you, we've landed on the moon. It's true, we've got rocks and everything. No, it's all, sure, sure, believe what you want, you know. I mean, it's kind of hard to, to, 
to get mad at someone like that, even if they mock and scoff you. Or it'd be kind of like someone scoffing you and laughing at you if you were trying to convince them that the world was round. Right? Um, listen, I'm telling you, the world's round. It's not, it's not flat. Oh, hey, Bob, get a load of this guy. He thinks the world's round. Ah, and they laugh at you. Right? I mean, even if they're laughing at you, you're not going to get mad at them because they're just, they're, they're naive. They're not believing what's the truth. Right? And you're going to have compassion on them. It's like, listen, I'm not lying to you. It's true. Right? And even if they mock and even if they're sca- they, 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 you know, scoff at you, they're, spirit- they're blind and they're not believing you. But you know it's the truth without a doubt. It's, it's not even questioned. Right? And sure, you know what? They might ask you questions about science. Well, explain to me the trajectory of, that a rocket would need. Or just strain, you know, explain to me the, the, how the, the circumference of the earth works. And you might not even know the answers to that. But you know the answers are there. And the same is true with God's Word. You know what? People might give you challenging questions you might not know the answer to on the spot. But that doesn't mean the answers aren't there. You can find them. No one has complete understanding of everything on the spot. And so we have compassion on these people who, who reject God's word, who scoff at us. And we can have compassion because, you know what? God's word is just as real, is just as a fact as that we land on the moon and that the world is around. It's no less of a fact. And so we have compassion on them and we can, we can interact with them. Their mocking shouldn't make you second-guess that the world is flat. And in the same way, their mocking shouldn't make you second-guess that God's Word is true. So remember this, and you will stand. Depend upon God's Word. So Peter continues, and he not only says they're going to mock you, but he actually gives you the way that they're going to mock you in many ways. And so I hope as we look into this, as we look into this next verse in understanding, that you see how relevant this is for today. Nothing has changed. Sometimes things come in different form, but the principles are still the same and you deal with them now, today. He continues, and he says that the scoffers will test your faith by trying to undermine it. By trying to undermine it and pick it apart. He continues in verse... Well, I'll begin in verse 3. We'll go through verse 4. Knowing this, first of all, the scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, yeah, you believe Jesus is coming, but where is He? I don't see Him. Can we fly in a high rock and go into space and see His throne in the sky somewhere? I mean, what's taking Him so long? If Jesus was real, why doesn't He come back right away and reveal Himself so that everyone will believe Him? No one would doubt Jesus if, that, if He did that. You ever heard something like that? The same thing is going on. The same kind of questions and rejections that the early church was facing, we face in many of the ways. And scoffers often have made this mentality. Okay, sure, fine. Jesus existed. He was a good man. He was a good teacher. He died just like everyone else. The idea he's coming back from the dead is silly. You know, believing in that, it's like believing in myths and fairy tales. That's not true. Ever since the world began, everything's been going the same. People are born, they do things, and they die. People are born, they do things, and they die. Nothing changes. Or they demand a sign on the spot. We'll prove it. And if you can't prove it on the spot, then they mock it. They mock you. They don't see any miracles now, so they doubt that, if, that, they, doubt that they ever occurred or that they'll occur again. And they scoff that Jesus will return. They scoff that you believe that God exists and that uh, there's only one way to heaven. They say, ever since the fathers fell asleep, things have continued the same way. In other words, what we see in the world is the same thing that's always been. 
We can observe nature, it's the same, we can observe weather patterns, and we have it all documented. Nothing changes. Ever since the beginning of the world, nothing changes. God is not involved with us at all. We don't see God. Where is God? We don't see Him. We, we can measure everything. We know how old things are. We can predict um, tides, and we can predict all these different shifting of the continents and things like that. We don't see God. Have you ever heard something like that? I certainly have. And attacks like this can be powerful because at first they seem to, to, to put, again, put the seen versus the unseen. What they do is they put physical evidence before and say, we have all this physical evidence, where's your evidence? Oh, you're just believing in myths and fairy tales with God. And because of that, these kind of arguments have driven many from the faith. People get discouraged and think, maybe they're right, maybe this whole thing is fairy tales. I've read books, I've talked to a number of people who are just like that. Oh, yeah, I believed in it when I was younger, but then I went to college and, you know, I, I wised up. I saw what the world's like. There's no God. Do not let this happen to you. And Peter, he's, trying, he's, he's warning you this is going to happen, and he's stirring up to, to help you remember God's word so that you apply it and that this doesn't affect you. And I say seemingly because God has not given us blind faith. It's not as if there's no evidence for the existence of God. In fact, God's word says, and, and as we see, you know, creation is, is screaming that there's a God. And, and, and science does not predict, contradict the Bible at all. There's plenty of science that points exactly to what the Bible says is true. What they are doing because of their sinful hearts is they're deciding to ignore that, follow their sinful desires, and pick and choose and interpret the things that they want to interpret and how. But if you're not careful, attacks like these can shake you to the core and they've caused many to walk away. Because today, many in the secular world, they worship the observations of science. They worship uh, the things that they can see and touch with the hands and they mock the supernatural. They, they mock the unobservable. In fact, they put their trust, they, they, they entrust their very soul and the reliability of that truth. But God's existence is clearly seen. But they don't see miracles. They don't see these things, and so they scoff otherwise. This is not so if you're a believer. We, we trust in God's Word. We see that his, the reality of His existence, and we'll talk about that in a second. But it's also, that's what living by faith is. And God has, been, uh, God has given us things so that He is trustworthy. He's proven Himself trustworthy through the fulfillment of prophecies and through miracles. But we don't see that. We, we, we can't, I can't walk up to the prophet Isaiah. I can't walk up to Moses and say, tell me what happened. We just have to trust their writings. And that's what faith is about. That's what Hebrews 11 says. That faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. We don't always see everything, but we don't have to. We trust in the God who created everything. It makes me kind of think of, uh, uh, and, and, and I don't know if some of you know Ray Comfort, but he kind of, kind of playing off an example he gives of, of, of being on an airplane in a parachute. It'd be kind of like this. If you, let's say you're on an airplane, and then you get a, a note from uh, the designer of the aircraft. Maybe it was left under your seat. Maybe you got it in the mail and didn't check until you sat down in your, in your chair, buckled up. And you open it up, and the note says, I've discovered something. There's a problem with the plane. It's going to crash. Put on a parachute. Put on a parachute. And you know the designer of the plane and you know he's trustworthy. You have no reason to second guess what he says. And so you put on a parachute and you go around and you try to convince others. Listen, I, I, have, this, I have a reliable source. Look, you can see his note. Put on a parachute. The plane's going to crash. Right? And the people on the airplane, they'll be like, mm, what are you talking about? I don't hear anything. 
I don't, there's, no, there's no weird turbulence. I've flown dozens of times. I've never seen any problems before. No, you're just making it up. I don't, this is all a big hoax, right? And you're saying, no, listen, you can see for yourself. Here's his note. I'm not lying to you, right? But they mock. And in fact, they, as you sit there in your seat, clinching your parachute, you don't know what's going to happen. You're just going. They mock and they, they get other people to mock you too. But all that mocking, does that make you want to take off your parachute? No. In fact, you're thankful for the parachute. And you don't care what they say. Let them laugh. You are thankful for the parachute because you know the designer is reliable. And the same thing, obviously this is a a funnier example. Um, I hope you never on a plane and you get a note from the designer that's going to crash. But the same thing is applied to us in that we have a note from the designer. And he is trustworthy. We have no reason to, to, to second guess that what his word is true. And if people mock us, we don't care. We're thankful that he has revealed that to us, and so we trust it. And we try to convince other people of such, and they can mock all they want, but that's not going to make us want to cast off God's word and say, ah, it's not true. Be prepared that they're going to attack you, but remember God's word and trust in it. And if you do, you will stand strong. Don't let ridicule make you doubt your designer. And one of the reasons why our designer is trustworthy is, is because I mentioned, because he's worked in the past. And that's what Peter moves on to the next point, is that he's proven faithful in the past. And Peter writes, the, the third aspect that scoffers do is that the scoffers or mockers, they deliberately ignore the works that God has already shown them. Right? They try to attack your faith, they try to undermine your faith, and then they, they, they deliberately ignore the truths that God has already shown them. And you'll see what I mean. Because Peter, he says these scoffers deny that God works supernaturally and is involved in mankind at all. But, Peter says, beginning in verse 5, but or 4, they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that existed then was deluged with water and perish. They say that God isn't involved and doesn't work. But they ignore one fact. We're here. We exist. We couldn't have just popped into existence out of nowhere. Even the secular scientists believe that. They, they don't understand that. They have no answer for that. Peter says, yeah, okay, fine. Things might have been working the same for many years. Yeah, the heavens, the stars, and, and, and the sun, and space, and even heaven itself, they've existed for a long time, but they haven't always existed. At one point in time, God intervened and said, I'm going to create, and He created, and we're here. And God made everything. Our very existence tells us that God acts, and that He has a plan and purpose for everything. And he continues and he, and, he, and he says, the earth, uh, just in the second part of verse 5, he says, the earth was formed out of water and through the water by the word of God. And, and, and what he's doing is, is Peter is just simply recounting the account of Genesis 1. He's, he's simply recounting the, the creation account. Right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering on the face of the waters. In the beginning, the first thing that God did before everything was formed is He created water. And then on the third day, as He was creating, He said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. And God, and God called the land earth. 
So essentially what God did is he just pulled the earth out of the water and he separated the two of them. And so that's all that Peter means. He doesn't, you know, I've read different commentaries, different thoughts about what this means about the earth being formed out of water. And it's not too complicated. He's just reminding us on what Genesis 1 says. That that's how God created. And what Peter is saying is, how can you say that God is not involved with man or history when he created them both? And I would say it's pretty logical to think if he created them and made them both, that he's got a plan and a purpose and he's working through it. But then the scoffers might answer, and you might have heard this before, okay, fine, fine, we believe, uh, uh, fine, I'll concede to you that a God or some sort of God created the world, but he hasn't intervened since. He just pretty much created everything, whether it was through evolution or if you want to believe the Christian thing, uh, which is true. Um, uh, then he created it and just stepped back and watches it function. He's watching from afar. He's not intervening at all. Have you ever heard that? And, but Peter answers them and he says, wrong again. We know he acts and we know he works. Because he says... After he says that the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word, verse 6, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was diluged with water and perished. He says, you forget that the same way that God spoke the land out of the water when he was creating it, he later spoke the land back into the water and destroyed it all. And everything that was on it and everyone, almost everyone, perished. Men say that God is an act and that there's no future judgment, but they forget that God has done it before. And he's referring again back to the days of Noah, and that's what God did. And this is the second time that, that Peter's referred back to Noah in this book. In the days of Noah, the Lord saw that the, the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and he says, I'm going to blot him out. I'm going to blot him out, and he did. And the ancient world perished. And we remember that story. In fact, uh, after everything, after the waters has subsided, he told Noah, um, now be fruitful, multiply, and I will never again destroy the world with water again. And as a sign of a covenant between you and I, I'm going to place my bow in the sky. And that bow remains today. You see, God wants his word and his promises to be remembered. And so even today, as you and I, when we have the occasion to look and see a rainbow, it's kind of rare in our in our area of the, the world, but it happens from time to time. When we see that, you and I can look and see God's faithfulness and that He does interact with man and that He is powerful. It's a symbol of, of, of faithfulness and joy knowing that we serve a God who fulfills His promises and loves us. But you know what? The world cannot look at the rainbow the same way. You know what they should see when they see the rainbow? They should be horrified. When they see the rainbow, they should run in terror. Because what it symbolizes, that yes, God is faithful, but you know what? It also symbolizes that God has judged the wicked. And that He'll do it again. You know, and I think it's odd, even that, you know, the the homosexual movement and those things, that uses the rainbow flag as their symbol. Right? But they should look at that and see that God does judge the world. He did it before, and He'll do it again. And Peter reveals that in verse 7. He continues. He says, The world existed, deluged with water and perished, but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist, post-flood, are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and the, and the destruction of the ungodly. 
Peter says the same word which created the world out of nothing and everything in it, all the wonderful things we see, the same word that then commanded the world to be plunged back under the oceans and everything destroyed, that same word is once again going to command the world to be destroyed, except this time he's going to use fire. He says, that the, uh, he says that the world is stored up or reserved. Uh, it means to put aside the Greek, it's uh, thesarizo. And, and it means just to, to put something aside specifically for a purpose. Like if you were going to open up a bank account and put some money in it for a specific purpose so that it couldn't be touched. It's just sitting there waiting, even collecting interest, until the day arrives when you need to extract it for the purpose. That's what God is revealing through Peter on what our state is. Now this earth that we're living on, it's being reserved for a specific purpose. It's safe. Nothing's going to happen until the right day. But when the day comes, the deposit's going to be made and it's going to be stored up. And it's stored up for fire. It's going to be destroyed by fire. And just like in the ancient world, so today, the ungodly will be destroyed. You remember this and you remember God's word. And you're allowing all this to be stirred up in your mind and you're living according to it so that it's in the forefront of your mind. Then no matter what the world says, no matter how they attack your faith, you can stand strong. Because you believe God and you believe that He is trustworthy. And as Peter went through this chapter, I don't know, do you see that he's doing the, he's doing the very thing that he's asking of you? Do you see that he's, he's applying these very same principles to his own life? What has he been doing this whole time? He's been remembering God's word and not, letting them, and not letting it undermine his faith. He says, remember God's word. Because the scoffers are going to come and they're going to tell you this, but God's word says this. And they're going to say that, but God's word says that. Don't believe him. You see, Peter is a living example of what we're supposed to be doing. He's not asking you some sort of unachievable task. All he's saying is remember the promises of God. And live according to them. And when people have, and people mock and question, you trust God's word over their questions. You might not have all the answers, you might not have perfect understanding, but they're there and you can search for them and seek them. You must do the same if you're going to be prepared. And that's why it's so important to be reading God's word and praying and being involved in studies because it helps you meet with other women, meet with other men who are going to stir up by way of reminder the truths of God's word so that when faith, when your faith is attacked, which it will be, you're prepared. And you're not shaken to the core. And you're not like the many who at once believed or said they believed but then walked away because they were not prepared. These adversaries are going to seek to undermine you. And they, they can be relentless sometimes. But we serve a God who is bigger than them, whose word is true, a God who has proven time and time again to be faithful. If you remember these things, you'll be not only prepared, but equipped to face them. And you will not only stand strong in your faith, but you'll be able to proclaim the good news of the gospel all the more. Well, as we get together next time, we'll we'll look at the other ways that remembering God's words equip you. But I, I encourage you just to continue to be praying, being involved in God's word. And if you do so, you'll stand strong in the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for our time this morning, your word. We thank you for your faithfulness, God, how you um, spoke all things into existence, how you created us in your image. And as your word says that the heavens declare your glory, we see 
uh, your fingerprint all around, Lord. I pray uh, for us as a church, I pray for all those uh, who hear your word, Lord, that, that they would stand strong in their faith in you. Lord, that their, their faith would not be shaken when it is attacked, that they would not um, waver, Lord, when, when um, they are laughed at and made fun of. Lord, that they would not follow wrong teaching, but, but stay uh, within your word and walk according to your word, Lord, that we might be people in a church who are pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.